0: Hi, and welcome to Handel's Bank and Insights. I'm Richard Winder, and I head up our sustainability work here in the UK. And together with James Sproul, we will be talking about the recent COP26 summit. So uh, without further ado, hello to you, James. Hello,
1: Richard. So, Richard, um, can I just kick off a a sort of a, we've we've all heard a lot about COP26. What was COP26 aiming to achieve and and how do you think the organisers do or have done in meeting these objectives?
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, Well, maybe it helps to set it in a bit of context. Uh, And if we take a time machine back to to 1994, we have the United Nations setting up its framework convention on climate change. That itself established this conference of the parties, i.e. these the parties to that agreement, and they would meet every year to talk through the science and to talk about the activities needed to combat climate change. Um, That process has um, gradually accelerated, and we saw a a sort of culmination of that um, in Paris in 2015, uh, where the 197 uh, nations came together and agreed to limit uh, global warming uh, to no more than two degrees above pre-industrial levels and to um, take steps to uh, limit it to 1.5 degrees. And why that 1.5 degrees matters is the science tells us that if we start to uh, nudge above that, we get into far more significant effects on lives and indeed on livelihoods. And if we get above two degrees, then we start setting off these so-called tipping points uh, where we can see far more significant and irreversible deterioration in in conditions for life. So that's the big picture context. Now, Glasgow, um, COP26, this was due to happen last year. But as as you know, this was uh, kicked back a year due to uh, the COVID pandemic. This was the first big moment after uh, after the Paris Agreement. Uh, And the point of it was to uh, finalise what's called the Paris Rulebook. So to ensure that there are these globally consistent, reliable rules for delivering what was agreed in Paris, for instance, around how carbon markets should operate, and reporting standards and the like. Uh, But it also had the aim of, of course, uh, in that context, keeping 1.5 degrees alive, as the organisers put it, uh, through strengthening the national plans and ambitions and commitments uh, covering particularly key carbon intensive sectors. And again, the organizers had this slogan around coal, cars, cash, and trees to try to encapsulate the the absolute most important of these uh, areas to reach multilateral agreements on. Um, And there was a a, a sort of subtext there um, that the world needs to take enough steps to halve our current emissions by 2030 if, we have, if, if we're to get on that trajectory to 1.5 degrees that we're not currently on. Uh, the last two areas that were really on the, on the core objectives for the conference were around um, adaptation. So ensuring there were strong plans uh, for how to adapt to that, that climate change that's already baked in, whatever we do from now on, uh, there's a degree of climate change that we're already seeing and it is going to get worse. And then also um, critically around how to gather together the finance for all of this change that is going to be needed. I'm sure we're going to talk about that a bit later. Um, you asked how they did. Obviously, that's a almost se- separate question. But um, I suppose you know, the expert view seemed to be that, that this is towards the top end of expectations. Uh, but it's, it's worth bearing in mind that this is still far from enough. Um, so there were two parts to it. There was the Glasgow Pact, the, the sort of written communique that comes out of the end, uh, and that had very um, strong parts to it there. But it also had some watering down, for instance, on the on the wording of coal, and and there wasn't much really about the the, the scale or the pace or nature of, of adaptation to to support developing countries either. Um, but there were also significant side deals done, and these were announced throughout the conference and made a lot of headlines as well, for instance, around uh, deforestation, uh, around methane reduction, this is a particularly pernicious um, uh, greenhouse gas, um, and also um, around coal and the phasing down, I think many would have liked to see phasing out, but the phasing down of, of coal and the, and the removal of uh, subsidies from any uh, fossil fuels uh, in in the future so it was uh, not perfect nobody really expected it to be perfect and it won't have satisfied everyone uh, but it was a strong result and uh, critically it, it kind of it finalized that framework um, so that countries will come back next year and the year after with uh, increasingly ambitious and increasingly detailed plans but um, you know that that's that's the big picture on all of this I suppose it's it, We've got to bear in mind that even after all that's said and done, and if all of those um, promises are kept to, we're still only on track for 2.4 degrees of warming. And that would still be calamitous. Uh, So there is a lot still to be done. Interested in your view, James, as an economist, um, you know the, the many balance, balancing points to be found here. Uh, what do you think these international agreements and, and the overall direction and pace of travel mean for the UK economy in particular, looking ahead?
1: Well, uh, the first thing is, I think I think agreements do matter. Uh, sometimes people could say they're they're uh, you know a vast talking shop, and, and clearly that can be the case at times. Um, but I do think that we can you know look over the last sort of a couple of generations and see and in the post-war world, lots of countries that they, they may sh- shuffle around a little bit, but they do try and, and keep to these agreements. So I think that you know, the agreements that come out of COP26 or, or its predecessor agreements, um, we've made a lot of, of, of progress. And I, I think we'll, we will continue to make a lot of progress. And you know, you're looking back into when the, the first person to sort of really raise the whole environmental standard on the international stage was, was actually Margaret Thatcher in the late 1980s in a speech to the UN. And um, you know, we, we started to make progress at that point for, for a whole range of reasons here in the UK. We have what they call the dash to gas, where we, we largely shut down our coal consumption um, and, and moved to gas. Now, gas is it's not perfect, but it's it's a lot better than coal. Uh, and I think that one of the, the guiding principles to getting to that greater degree of sustainability, where, wherever the, the final analysis is in how much renewables we have, we we, we don't want to make, uh, at any point, um, uh, perfect the enemy of good, and then clearly gas is better than than uh, coal, uh, but it's not our final place, the final resting place that we're going to see. But in terms of overall um, what's going on with the economy, uh, clearly one of the things that's that's absolutely critical is going to be technological advancement. And we can see a lot of times, for instance, in the UK, it gives us ideas of how quickly technological advancement can come through. Um, So for instance, if we look at people's home boilers, that, that takes about 10 to 15 years to sort of uh, get the entire country to refit all of their boilers and anything faster than that runs into problems of, can people afford it? Do we have enough people who can install it? So some some really basic uh, parameters on what goes on with the economy and how quickly one can manage technological uh, advancements like that. But I think that so long as it's done at a uh, uh, pace like that, I don't think it's going to have that big a negative impact on the economy as a whole. In fact, I, there's a lot of talk about you know, creating green jobs, et cetera. Uh, and that's certainly there's a a scope for that sort of thing coming through. Um, But uh, um, even without looking at that, I think that the um, objective of a lot of politicians will be to one, meet the terms of the agreement uh, that you just set out in COP26, uh, but also to do so at a pace which um, the the people of any country, the UK as an example, um, can can clearly meet without seeing their uh, prosperity um, uh, notably diminished in any way, because that, that that's very, very difficult for politicians to explain to people why that should happen. So I think that we've got a balance here, and I think we're actually going to strike that balance. So I'm pretty pretty optimistic about the whole thing um, moving forward in the next few years. Um, one of the things that that strikes me also is, of course, the way in which we we've seen uh, enormous amounts of finance moving into this. You know, you and I working in a bank, uh, we can see some of that from both our, our clients and, and the way that the bank strategy has been set out. And we, we saw earlier headlines about the vast sums of Global Finance committed to um, financing this transition. What, what's your take on this from the inside of the, those agreements?
0: Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting the way this was positioned by the, uh, the former uh, governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney. Uh, he announced this uh, enormous $130 trillion that, that, that was committed by financial institutions to, if you like, to the Green Revolution. Um, and he announced it under this rather ungainly acronym of, uh, sorry, acronym of of G Fans, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Now, we are one of the banks uh, counted in this uh, in this giant figure, uh, both in terms of our financing and in terms of our um, fund investments as well. Um, and I would say, just big picture, that having been involved in a number of these discussions with, with, with many other banks from, from different parts of the world, there is now no doubting that the sector is on a, on a rapid march towards net zero. Uh, and really with no plan B in mind, it's uh, partly because I think banks are um, keen to re-establish in many cases their, 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 their so- social value and people's understanding of that. But I think there's equally, there's no doubt uh, the banks and, and investors are more and more seeing a, a once in a generation commercial opportunity out of this, this uh, great shift and, and all of the investment that's going to be needed to uh, make that happen. Um, and I think it's interesting in the UK context in particular, given the UK's position as a as a global financial and business centre, uh, that it's now attempting to take this lead on the whole green revolution. In order to maximise the opportunity for the country as well, and and I had a question actually off the back of that for you, with this ambition in mind. But how how do you interpret the UK's net zero strategy as it was published in the days leading up to COP? To you, does it does it seem coherent? Does it seem achievable? And obviously, does it does it feel up to the scale of the threat?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really really big question. Now, the UK is um, unusual internationally in that we have set um, uh, our net zero strategy as a law. And um, clearly that could be unwound. There's a, a rule in the UK constitution that, that no parliament can bind its successor. So if if there was a desire to, to move away from that, they could, but they would have to go through the embarrassment of, of backing away and actually legally legislating to, to change what they legislated one way. This was, was done by Theresa May uh, during her, her reasonably brief interregnum as, a, as prime minister. Um, so I think there's a there's a, a it's a big ask so we, we set ourselves a pretty stiff target here uh, and looking at the where we as the UK produce lots of carbon I think there's three big questions uh, one is um on on housing one is on cars and one is on electricity generation housing is a difficult one um the UK has a pretty old housing stock um, and I think that there's a, a need here and we are doing this to look holistically at that obviously we've got a lot of older houses in the UK and, and many of those houses if you look at the the amount of carbon in a you hundred know, year old house, obviously that carbon is, is uh, well well exhausted in terms of accounting you know, against the economy because the, the bricks were produced so long ago. Um, and so that's good. Um, its insulation needs to be updated and, and that sort of thing is going on. We are seeing people doing lots of insulation. There's a much bigger question sitting around um, how quickly we're going to get uh, boilers and what um, sorts of um, heating and, and hot water people or how they're going to get hot water in the longer term. Um, I don't think we have a solution to that yet. And uh, certainly not a solution for every type of house. Uh, It's fine if you're living in a detached house in the country, but it's obviously pretty different if you're living in uh, a flat in the city. Um, The other big area, of course, is cars. And we're doing some pretty good work here. Uh, Lots more electric cars. Um, I myself, I have a hybrid car, Um, but we're getting many more charging stations out there. And and again, this is the sort of thing that that typically happens over a decade because of course the typical car lasts a decade. So we're seeing people slowly adopting this sort of thing. And I think that we're going to see a lot more of that coming through in the coming years. And and clearly there was some incentive by the government at the outset, uh, although um, much of that incentivization is is falling away. So I think there's a a coherent, uh, I think it's achievable. Um, The big one is going to be electricity generation and how we do that. Now, interestingly, in a former life, I actually financed wind farms. And so I know quite a lot about the economics of them. And one of the things I find very, very interesting is the prices that we were able to get for wind farms back 10, 15 years ago when I was financing them, oh my gosh, they're so much more efficient and so much better at producing energy today than they were back then. And that's, I mean, obviously a, a clearly great thing. Um, and so it's, it's that technological degree of technological advance that we need to see. Uh, we've seen a lot of it in wind farms. I'm sure we'll see, continue to see more. We need to see it in solar. We need to see it particularly in battery uh, and electricity storage because that's going to be an incredibly important part of getting renewables to work in the evening, when many of us, of course, uh, want to use electricity. So um, I, I think there is a coherent achievable, but it does require a bit of technological advance to go along with it. But then I'm pretty confident we're going to get that. So um, well, in fact, I'm as confident as I possibly could be that we're going to continue to see big technological advances. And that's um, that's a very positive thing. Now, I know our organization uh, particularly focuses on measures to support decarbonization in the UK's building stock because we have so much Interest in, in housing, um, have have recent weeks been how how recently been for that agenda?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I think it leads leads very well on from what you were saying about about housing and, and the challenges with the with the property stock we've got in the UK. So, um, uh, just ahead of the the net zero strategy from government, we also had this long awaited heating building strategy, um, and I'd say having read it cover to cover, that it's a really thorough document. What it does is explains these intricate challenges and trade-offs that policymakers are are having to make. For example, the question of whether hydrogen will be viable for home heating, which won't itself be settled until 2026 at the earliest, Mm -hmm. or indeed the need to drive down the costs and increase the performance of heat pumps before they can be marketed at scale. You know, you talked about technology advances in other areas. I think that's one where the government sees that that there needs to be very rapid acceleration of that, of that development um, for these to be um, able to be rolled out um, at scale. Um, And so on the one hand, the government is, is, is trying to incentivize early adopters. It's launched another um, scheme, a scheme of grants to to help people to um, invest in heat pumps. But on the other, it's, it's trying to work with home energy providers, to, um, to sort of incentivise or to nudge them towards um, creating a growing share of heat pumps to conventional boilers. And, and also um, the government's looking at how it can directly fund innovation in, in heat pump technology to increase the efficiency there um, and, and um, yeah, increase the cost effectiveness as well. Um, but in the meantime, you also referred to insulation as, as, as something that uh, could no doubt be looked at um, and this is this is very much um, you know the, the starting point of, of the government's strategy here. This so-called fabric-first approach, and that requires businesses and homeowners to to insulate their properties to a greater degree. So that to this to this end, the government's pushing forward with uh, its higher minimum energy efficiency standards across all property types, whilst it's also incentivising greater enforcement. Because I think in the past you know local authorities haven't necessarily been that hot on in enforcing these uh, these standards but one thing that struck me as i read the document i couldn't help thinking there could have been more financial support to incentivize energy efficiency measures in the private marketplace especially if we think about the removal of the green homes grant at the beginning of the year or indeed um to support development of the supply chain around deep retrofitting this is something that bankers for net zero group that we're part of uh, was calling for a significant financial kickstart from government around retrofitting Um, and we argued that this would prove both effective from an environmental point of view but also economically in the long run if we could if we could get the fabric sorted as the government wants to uh, and in time to then uh, be able to more confidently look at the heat source replacements anyway all of that quite detailed, relevant to property owners and developers, of course, but but I'm interested in, in your economy-wide view of the challenge ahead of us. Where do you see British business sentiment and behaviour right now when it comes to climate change and to sustainability more broadly?
1: Well, first of my, my wife was very, very annoyed that uh, the Green Homes Grant went away because we were busy applying for it and then the programme ended before we got to put the application in. So... And uh, we were one of those disappointed, disappointed families that uh, we, we missed out on that. Um, but no, getting to your question, um, I, I think there's a big challenge here. There's a big challenge. Many of these things, and I think this really breaks down into two two different ways to approach it. Um, do you want to try to change the culture, which is difficult and takes a lot of time, or do you want to really aim at those things that are going to make the biggest difference, um, given that the scale of the challenge that we're we're, we're facing? And um, we can look at the other things in the the fullness of time, but we really just need to address uh, the the half a dozen critical things. And the answer isn't one or the other, I think the answer is both. But I I do think that um, particularly uh, those people who want to change culture have to appreciate changing culture quickly is hard. And um, given the speed we want to move, I would suggest we want to do that uh, alongside uh, really changing what matters. And if we look at what businesses have done so far, and what they're wanting to do in the longer term. So, you know, if you ask most businesses in the UK, what are you, um, what what measures have you made to to um, address issues around sustainability? They'll tell you they've changed their light bulbs, and that's that's good. But that's I, I would suggest probably not going to be sufficient uh, by itself to uh, meet our um, decarbonization goals. Uh, they've also installed smart meters, which uh, I have some some reservations about uh, the technology behind those smart meters. Uh, and again, I don't think it's going to be um, sufficient to, to reach our goals. I think we need to, to look at some of the areas where they've made less progress, but actually that's probably good news because it means that um, there's uh, some some easy wins to come and those easy wins are gonna make a big difference. And we look, for instance, at a lot of transport and we know that, for instance, the uh, amount of people shopping online has gone up from about 20% pre-COVID pre, uh, pan- pandemic, sort of 27, 28% now. So quite a significant increase in that. Um, but how are the transportation trucks powered? Uh, some are electric, um, many are not, um, but there's obviously some scope to, to rapidly um, uh, decarbonize a lot of our, our uh, logistics grid. And that's really, really good, good news. Uh, electricity generation is another area where many businesses are uh, very, very willing to go green. Um, and I think that will only increase, uh, but there needs to, of course, be sufficient green generating capacity. Against this, the big thing, you know, ask a business that the Office for National Statistics Set out and asked businesses, "All these, what's your concern?" And the answer was a pretty, pretty sensible one. They're concerned about the cost, uh, and um, you know, you wouldn't expect any business not to be concerned about costs, really. And so, I think that you know, that we want to have this greater sustainability, and we have to all the time keep in mind uh, these solutions that we're coming to have to be cost-effective. Uh, and you know, businesses going to adopt those. Um, obviously, they're they're watching out for their clients, their consumers, and. They think that their consumers are always, to a degree, price sensitive, and I would say that probably they probably know their customer base pretty well.
0: So you've you've mentioned financing and and the concerns around that. Um, so if we're thinking um, macro picture here, do you see any other significant tailwinds and indeed maybe headwinds coming up um, economically that that will uh, affect? How businesses are able to um, move towards net zero here in here in Britain in particular, and, and does does size or sector matter particularly in this area? Would you say?
1: Uh, I think size sector does matter. I, I think you know if, if I had to put the biggest headwind, um, we do need swing capacity in electricity generation, and that means you know we, we've got a, a nuclear baseload. Obviously, we're building Hinkley Point at vast cost. Um, and already overrunning on that cost, so there, there's some challenges there. about that um, they've now the government has announced a uh, move towards uh, more modular reactors, which promise to bring uh, cheaper uh, nuclear power on as part of the baseload. I think that's probably a very good idea. Um, then we've got obviously the renewables capacity, which we're continuing to build more of, which is great. Um, but we need something in between, something that's going to if if the wind doesn't blow and you can't use nuclear for variable capacity, so you need something in the in the, minute, in, the in the interim there. Um, eventually, we hope to be able to have lots of stored capacity, but probably for at least the next few years, you're going to have to have some of that, that gas filling that, that thing as a, as a interim solution. I think that's a big challenge. I, I think can we continue to, to move towards net zero? Probably won't hit it as long as we're using all that gas, um, but we can certainly move a lot better than we have been. Uh, so that's sort of the big headwind. Um, I think the biggest tailwind, and, and here I'm really enthusiastic. Uh, one of the things that I've looked at a lot over the years is the uh, amount of entrepreneurialism that exists within not just the UK, but lots of other countries as well. And across Europe, um, the, the UK is uh, the most entrepreneurial large uh, economy that, that there is. Uh, there's other parts of, of Europe that are, of course, uh, very entrepreneurial as well. A lot of areas, actually, that Hamelsberg is very active in. So Sweden, uh, a lot of the other Nordics, Netherlands, etc. So So um, that's the sort of the arc of, of entrepreneurialism that exists in Europe. and. That's what gives me real hope in the long long term because uh, we are very very innovative as a people not just here in the UK but you know, in general humans can be very very innovative and um, I don't think that the, um, the the final way in which we're going to, to crack this nut has been uh, discovered yet I'm sure there will be things that we haven't imagined that help us along the way quite considerably in, in coming years and I think that's that's my um, the big tailwind is just the general innovative um, ability of the human race um but you know now now that we were looking forward and now we've obviously COP26 is now closed the, the leaders have flown home the circus left town what do you think the legacy is going to be and um what will be for us here in the UK as the host country
0: well I mean, ultimately of course climate change is a global challenge the biggest of all and, and we can't we can't force other countries to step up and we've been doing our best and I guess we'll continue to do our best to to nudge other countries for the rest of our presidency. Um, and then when you think about the UK, of course our own governments will come and go. And I can only imagine that public exposure to the effects of a worsening climate will, will create their own political pressures, in some cases helpful, in some cases not so helpful. But one thing the Glasgow pro- process has done is, is really helped to lock in and, and accelerate what was already a, a, a clear direction of travel and that business and finance are really trying to take a lead in this area, which is so encouraging, I would say. So as I see it, Britain, you know, we have these historical strengths in innovation, in finance, in diplomacy as well. It should have every chance of maintaining a leading position in in this green revolution and thereby reaping economic and, and environmental and social benefits. But that's not at all to say that it will be plain sailing, or even that we'll manage to achieve it. And I think we have to acknowledge that that comes down to what we all do now together over these next few years. So with that, I'm conscious we've chatted for a while and no doubt we could keep talking about this all day, but it's, uh, it's probably time to wrap up. So James, it was really great to catch up with you. Until next time.
1: Thanks, Richard. Always good chatting to you.